This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1992. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. From the Detroit Free Press, October 21st, 1992. A landlord and his tenant were found dead Tuesday in an apparent murder-suicide, police say. The bodies were found in the front yard of a home in Lincoln Township owned by Arnold Holmes, 55, of Ashton. Troopers said it appeared Holmes' tenant died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The 57-year-old man's name was withheld pending notification of relatives. Investigators said there was no sign of struggle and it was unclear what happened. That was the extent of the newspaper coverage on the murder of Arnold Holmes, at least as far as I could find. It's also inaccurate. It states that the bodies, plural, were found in the front yard. They weren't. One body was found in the yard near the trailer home. Another body was found elsewhere. I eventually learned that there were a number of reasons why this case was where it was. Technically unsolved, but more likely than not, it was resolved in the minds of law enforcement. In the pages that I've poured over today, there is zero mention of anybody else having ever been there. Not another name is brought up, not another indication of, of suspicion of on, placed on anybody else. I don't care what comes back, I will go to my grave. I do not believe that Ken shot him. I will never believe that. I just, I am, it bothers me because you can't put a period on this. There's still some concerns. He was trying to get Ken to move down to Saginaw with him. Um, And he said that Ken told him he couldn't tell him, couldn't tell him about it, but he's got it all figured out. What? Yeah. While I'm busy researching next season, which is turning out to be a much more dense case than I had initially anticipated, I want to present a case that I found to be a real learning experience. There are times where cases have gone as far as they can go, and while they might technically be considered unsolved, police believe they know what happened. This is one of those cases. I had previously heard a little about Arnold's case through the grapevine, Just like I do all the local cases, someone contacts me to ask what I know about it, and then we get to talking. I knew that he'd been found dead of a gunshot wound outside a trailer home in Lincoln Township, in an area that many would describe as the boonies. But that's really all I knew, until I received the following email. Good afternoon, Miss Decker. I was doing some surfing last night on an unsolved homicide case from Osceola County when I came across your book, and subsequently, your blog as well. I had read the entry about the seven unsolved homicides in the immediate vicinity of Reed City, and someone mentioned Ed Sweet and Arnold Holmes. 
Curiously enough, at least to me, Arnold Holmes never made that list. Full disclosure here, as you've probably seen my email address, this one has a family connection for me. Arnold was my cousin. 25 years later, it still nags at me. I was just a young lad at the time, and my inability to comprehend the phenomenon of murder at that age caused this incident to terrify me when it happened. Fast forward 25 years, and now it nags at me for a different reason. I'm a deputy for a large sheriff's office in Michigan, and the thought of delayed or escaped justice chaps my ass more than just a little. That intensifies when it involves family. I don't know if this case stirs any interest in you at all, but if it does, and because it apparently didn't make the list, I'll tell you what I know of it. Arnold Holmes was shot and killed sometime the night of October 19, 1992. He was murdered in a rural area north of Reed City, just outside Ashton. Specifically, it was an area off of 185th Avenue that runs south off of 11 Mile. The area sits in a low spot and is very swampy. I would trap with my grandpa there up until I left for the service in 2007. The place always gave me the creeps, and given my experiences and profession, I don't spook easy. Arnold was found dead on a rental property he owned that night by my uncle, Mark Holmes. He was found to have been shot twice with a 22 caliber. The weapon was never recovered, to my knowledge. In a true spate of truth being stranger than fiction, there were two bodies recovered there that evening. To date, the whole incident remains shrouded in mystery. If you're interested, I would be happy to tell you more of what I know. I wasn't sure why Arnold Holmes hadn't made it onto my Michigan State Police District 6 unsolved homicide list, and that alone was enough to make me curious. I like to know the processes by which law enforcement bodies work because it aids in my understanding of why cases may be where they are. In this case, I had a family member reaching out to me, which is very common. It's how I get involved with most cases. But here I had the added bonus, at least from my perspective, of that family member being a member of law enforcement. That greatly increases my odds of being able to delve into a resource that I don't generally have such unfettered access to. While I am not afraid to contact law enforcement if I have a question, because the worst they can do is refuse to answer or not respond at all, it's rare to have a back and forth with them that ends with me learning something really useful to my future research. In this case, I did, I think, and I'm always grateful when someone in a position like this offers me their time. So Arnold's cousin and I exchanged emails over a period of weeks, discussing possibilities about the case from the information that had traveled through the gossip mill for a couple decades. Not unlike any of the other cases that I've covered, some of the information that family members had wasn't completely accurate. The lack of information coupled with the passage of time almost always equals inconsistencies, and if you've been here from the beginning, you know that I have spoken about this before. Humans just love to fill holes. Like eating fills your belly, whether you were hungry or not in the first place, often it's a matter of filling holes in a story with supposition in order to make sense of all that we don't know. It's like comfort food, but for the brain. When Arnold's cousin went home for Thanksgiving the year I compiled the research for this case, he was able to ask his uncle what he remembered from that day. After attending Thanksgiving dinner, he sent me an email about what he had learned. Here's an excerpt. Mark told me that Arnold had left home to go speak to Ken Varney at the rental at about five the evening of the murder. Mark was supposed to have gone to pick up Arnold and go coon hunting that night. Arnold's wife, Kathy, told Mark where Arnold had gone, and Mark asked that he call him back when he returned. Arnold never called. Mark called Kathy back several times to inquire about Arnold's return, and by nine, Mark said he knew something wasn't right. Mark went down to the rental. It was dark and snowing like a bitch, according to him. He pulled up to the trailer and saw Arnold's car. 
All the lights were out in the house. Mark reiterated that he knew something had happened. He had my cousin Randy with him and he stayed in the truck while Mark got out. He said that he pulled up to the car and then backed around so the front of the truck would be facing back outwards toward the road. I don't know if he did that out of habit or for quick egress. Mark said that he yelled for Arnold several times. He walked by the car toward the house and continued yelling. He received no answer. Mark was carrying what we call a coon light. The battery pack is on a belt and it wires up to a headlamp like a miner would wear. He was using the light as he turned around to go back to the truck. That's when he says he saw Arnold laying on the ground near the car. He had initially walked right by him without even seeing him. Mark said he yelled to Randy, Fuck, he's been shot, let's go! Mark then returned to Kathy's house where he called the sheriff's office. He said that he told Kathy that Arnold was shot. About the discovery, Mark said, It scared the shit out of me. I asked Mark how he knew Arnold was shot, and he said he just figured that he was. He had initially thought that Arnold had bled out around his face and head. He was later told that it was body heat and respirations that had melted the snow, and that there wasn't any blood. That information came about because Detective Pratt asked the same question that I did, which was, how did you know that he was shot? Mark said his firearm was never seized or inspected and hasn't been to this day, in spite of the fact that it is a 22 caliber, the same used to shoot Arnold. He was not contacted until the next day when he was asked to go to the post for an interview. During the interview, he was asked if he saw anything unusual. Mark said that he told them that he had seen Ken Varney's son up the road in Ashton on a payphone as he came through. Ken Varney Sr. was subsequently discovered behind the trailer that night in a chair under an apple tree. There is, according to Mark, no question that Ken Varney did commit suicide. According to Mark, and I hope to confirm this through FOIA records, the only 22 Ken Varney owned was a 22 pistol. It was never located. And that is supposedly why the murder-suicide theory does not hold water around here and may very well be why this case remains open. Herein lies the rub, folks. We have two bodies, allegedly shot with two different weapons, one of which was not located at the scene. I think you can see why that might be a problem as far as clearing a case. The gun didn't wander off by itself, certainly. So what happened? Did Mr. Varney kill Arnold Holmes, dispose of one weapon, then go behind the trailer under the apple tree and kill himself? We batted theories back and forth, and I got to ask questions about all sorts of things, including different types of guns and what each were capable of. It's also refreshing to hear what a law enforcement officer is thinking about a case for which he doesn't yet have the facts. I will say one thing in that regard. He had no propensity to jump to conclusions, which, again, added to the refreshing nature of the conversation, because that is not how it goes with the general population. We are the hole fillers. So Arnold's cousin sent a FOIA request for the file, which was another novelty for me because usually I'm the one doing the FOIAing. And then we waited. And waited. Meanwhile, I contacted Arnold's wife at the time of the murder, and she agreed to speak with me about the case. Yeah, so, but Pratt has known Arnold for years, had known him for years. Um, oh, really? From back, from back in the day, only when I first moved up, I moved up here in 78 from Detroit, and that's when I met Arnold. And uh, In fact, I moved up here October 19th of 78, and he was killed October 19th of 92. So, and back then, Arnold had been in prison once before when he was like 17, mm -hmm. and it was for breaking and entering of an abandoned cabin. Well, back then, that was a felony charge. 
mm-hmm. it was, and now it's a misdemeanor. I don't even know if they, I, I think they just kind of slap your wrist anymore. Um, it was him and two other kids, and they were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. But um, it was no, you know, nobody was hurt, nobody was harmed, there was nothing stolen, you know, anything like that. But he did, he did go to Jackson for it. And so back in 79, 80, uh, Arnold tried, because we bought fur, he was a fur buyer in Ashton, and we had tried to get a concealed weapons permit. And at that time, Jim Tulaski was on that board, and he refused to give him one from something that had happened, you know, 25, oh, this would have been back in probably 54, because <laughs> oh, Arnold was years older than I. He was 18 years older than I was, so when I met him. Um, but because uh, I was only 22 when I met him, he was 40. But, uh, yeah, so he refused to give him because we carried a, a large amount of money on us um, when we were buying fur because we had, you know, we paid cash for, for the fur hides. But uh, so there was always something going on, you know, and, and so we, we'd known Pratt. And then when my sister was killed and, uh, you know, different things like that. So mm-hmm. um, so I've gotten to have somewhat of a relationship with Pratt over the years. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately not, you know, I mean, not a bad relationship, but not because you want to have a relationship with exactly. him. Exactly. So, um, but as far as, as far as Arnold went, um, actually... Mark, who would be, um, Eldon would be his dad, uh, Mark Holmes, which would be uncle to the one that was the officer. Um, Mark was actually the one that went out and looked for him for me and found him. So how about let's start with, just start with that day. Tell me what you remember from that day, and, and I'll jump in if I have a question, and we'll go from there. Ken had been running from us for several years. Um, Ken had some mental health issues. Ken Barney. Um Arnold had just gotten back from a three-week hunting trip with Mark's dad and brothers. In fact, I think Mark was even with them. Um, they had only been home two days, and he had told them before he left that he needed to find another place because he'd been. We had been letting him stay there rent-free for like a year and a half. He didn't have any money, couldn't get any help. Um, Arnold got home. You're that You're talking about Ken, right? Ken, Ken, Ken correct. Was living there. Ken was living in the in the trailer, right? And it was not anything great, but he he had lived there and he had he had worked for us on different times at the house. I I trust. I mean, Ken ate dinner with us in my home. I had no problems with Ken whatsoever, and to this day, I do not believe Ken had anything to do with it. Um, but anyways, he had uh, he'd gotten home from this hunting trip in Wyoming the next day, which was the day he was killed. Um, he said, "I've got to go over and talk to Ken." And I said, okay. So, well, he had just that night, the night before, he had just brought our oldest son a hunting license, a small game license, because him and Mark were going coon hunting. Um, and Mark had called. Arnold had left probably, I want to say, 3 o'clock or so in the afternoon to go over to the, the trailer, and which is only like a mile and a half from the house, because we lived right on 11 Mile. Um, and he uh, he didn't come home. He didn't come home. Well, it was getting to be 5.30, 6 o'clock, and it started to get dark, and Mark called and said, you know, I'm, I'm on my way over. And I said, Mark, he hasn't come home yet, and he's been gone for several hours. So he said, well, I'll go over and check. And uh, so he went over to check. Well, he came back, and he says, Kathy, you need to call the police. And I says, well, what's the matter? And he said, Arnold's dead. And I said, what? And I can remember this just like it was yesterday. I, I don't think I'll ever forget that conversation. He said, Arnold was laying on the ground outside the trailer, between the trailer and the truck. So I called 911. Well, they had just received a call. Um, apparently, it came from Ken's son, which I'm not, I can't remember now, to be honest with you, if his name was Ken also. Um, but apparently, he and him and his girlfriend had been living in the home also. Uh, rent-free. She was, if I remember correctly, was like seven or eight months pregnant. And, but he left, I don't know if you know where the property is. If you go east on 11 mile out of Ashton and you go to 185th Avenue, it comes around and then hits 10 mile. It was, it was the 40 acres right there on that curve. And you had to go up this long driveway over this swampy area, um, up to this old, and it was an old dilapidated trailer, um, the the door to get into the trailer was behind the trailer, and then up behind the trailer was woods and an orchard off to the left. And uh, 
So there were sliding doors coming out of the trailer, um, and that's where our hole was found, was between those sliding doors and the pickup truck, which was the end of the trailer um, to the north. So he said he had to drive. The son had to have driven from the trailer north down 185th to 11 Mile, clear into Ashton. He used the payphone at the Ashton store, or at the, at the by the post office when there used to be a payphone there. Not post office, uh, fire station. And uh, he passed several homes in between Ken's, between the trailer and there. He could have stopped at every one of those, including a friend of ours who lived just down the road who is now deceased. In, this, in the meantime, I had gone back with Mark to the trailer. And we, they would, by then the police were there. Um, we, they, would of course, wouldn't let us up the driveway. And we're standing out in the road, and it's wet and snowy and um, that was that was getting to be six thirty seven o'clock. It was dark, and I remember it snowing because all I had on was moccasins, and I remember not being able to feel my feet, but just standing there because I was in shock. I think um, at that point I had children at home, and it was close to I want to say eleven twelve o'clock before. The police finally said, you might as well go home because it's going to be a while. We're not going to allow anybody up because by that, at that time, they still had not located Ken. And so they took it as a he, they were still an active shooter because mm-hmm. they had not, you know, found him. Um, I guess they did, they did get up to, they saw Arnold on the ground, but they could not find Ken. Well, come, it was probably two, three o'clock in the morning, maybe four even, when George came to the house and said that they had found, um, they found, of course, they'd found Arnold, but that they had also found Ken out in the orchard with an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. How, first of all, how far away um, from the trailer, and, and I'm assuming it's on the backside of the orchard where... It was on the backside of the trailer, yeah, it's no longer there, but yeah. And, and how far away physically was, was he? he? The yes. Um... I'm going to say, I'm not real good with measurement, but I'm going to say probably 20, 25 feet from the back sliding door, and the truck was probably another 20 feet from him. He was, like, right in between the truck and the trailer. He was walking away from the trailer. Um, Arnold had had enough incidences through his life, and Arnold was an avid hunter and, you know, guns and things like that. We had several guns in our home. Um, Arnold would never have walked away from something if he'd have felt there was any danger. Right. Um, apparently, Arnold was shot twice. Um, first time was, they're telling me they, they think the first shot was to the left shoulder, which in turn made him turn, you know, because it hit him and he kind of jerked and turned to the left. Right. The second shot hit him at the spinal cord. Oh. And severed the spinal cord, and he was—I mean, he was gone within seconds. He was gone. So, and he, of course, he was long johns, hunting suit, you know, winter boots, whatever. He was found face down, um, down in the in the snow because there was snow at that time. And so they could never give me a time frame as far as you know when he was killed or anything. They were but not able to decipher. Not a real specific one, no, because of the way the supposedly the way the body heat was kept in because of the insulation and and all of that. You know, I, well, you know, I, you're talking somebody who had never had to deal with anything like that before. You know, and so I took them at their word. You know, they were officers; they should know what they were talking about. Um, well, over the years, I questioned. They would have gotten that from the the autopsy, correct? Um, so. That was never really, there was never a real specific time that I remember them giving me. In the meantime, Ken was, like I said, Ken was found up in the orchard, which was, I'm going to say several yards, several, well, maybe, I, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many yards away from the house, but it was up the hill in the orchard. There was an old orchard, excuse me, up there. Um, supposedly, there was a rigged up shotgun that he, he supposedly used to kill himself with. Well, a rigged up shotgun. A rigged up shotgun. <laughs> so the, um, he figured out a way to shoot himself. In that shotgun. time, yeah. And so I don't, and I, and that in itself, I don't believe. I, I will go to my grave 
I don't care what comes back. I will go to my grave. I do not believe that Ken shot him. I will never no. believe that. And I know it affected uh, um, Mark. Mark was... Mark and Arnold were pretty close. Well, so was Elvin for that matter. Mark, Mark and... Or Doug, boy. Arnold and that those cousins there were pretty tight and they did a lot of I mean they did a lot of hunting together they'd go out west hunting um he was also close he was somewhat close to the rest of his cousins but um his mom and dad lived right next door to us and I know it was devastating to them um and you know to the day they both passed um because he passed uh, his dad passed in 85. My mom passed in 85 in June, and he passed in September. And so, it's you know, there was a lot of things going on, but yeah. it just, there was always questions. His dad always questioned, you know, what had happened. He never believed that was the way it happened either. And, uh, you know, you can only get the police to do just so much. And then when the autopsy came back that, yes, he had been, you know, it was a gunshot wound. Um, uh, nothing, but couldn't, you know, didn't have any other, it was always put off as a murder-suicide. Yeah, I was only yeah. able to find one article, and that's what it said, but that was two days after, and then... And, you know, I don't, it's funny, because I, I saw that article on your on your blog, and I was like, oh, my God, I'd forgotten all about that, because at that time, we had just started, um, we did foster care for, I, in fact, my the husband, the guy I'm married to now, we've been married 15 years. Um, I have done foster care since 80, 85, 86, just after my mom passed away in 85. So we had started, we had decided, I worked for an area, AIS home in Reed City, and decided that I also had a sister who was Down syndrome who I was taking care of who lived with my mom. So there was a lot of stuff, you know, that I was I had to take responsibility on. Um, I mean, she's always been part of my life, but, um, and it just got to the point we had two children, um, and uh, it got to the point where I decided, you know, I think I'm just going to do this on my own instead of for somebody else. So we got licensed for foster care, and it was just the day, two days before he left to go out west that we had gotten a young man from Muskegon Regional because they were closing the center down. And uh, I sometimes wonder if it wasn't an omen because um, he was 24-hour round-the-clock care and we had to have people in helping and it was through CMH out of Cadillac. And the day, I don't know, was, that was at night. The next day, my social worker had heard it on the news that morning. Had not, I had not even had a chance to call her yet. Um, had it not been for them, I don't know what I'd have done because I thought for sure this was, you know, it. And uh, so they brought me in 24-hour round-the-clock care for, for this young man to give me a, you know, breather for a month. And uh, and then I was just there with, I had him and my two children and my sister and um, between that situation and everything else going on, um, and then having the stuff from other family members, well, you ought to be doing this and you ought to be doing that. And well, how come they can't do this? And how come they can't do that? I was like, <sighs> I just, you know, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, so I, I just, to this day, I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, will say, Hey, has you know, anything ever been done? And I said, no, it's, as far as I know, it's still an open murder. Death doesn't occur in a vacuum. People of a certain age, we know that strange feeling when somebody we're close to dies. And how alien life feels from that moment forward. How it's unimaginable that everyone around us is just continuing their lives as if nothing has happened. When to us, nothing is the same. Everything around us has crumbled. Nothing looks familiar. Even breathing feels wrong. I am currently in this place because as I prepare this podcast, my stepfather, Bob, died recently. It was sudden and jarring, and, and I can't find the words really to express how much I 
miss just the little things between us. Like him coming over for eggs because I have chickens and chatting about politics or laughing at the last thing one of my sons did or said. Bob was the guy that I would go to with most questions because his wealth of knowledge on pretty much any topic made him my human version of Google. The last big laugh that we had was a few months ago when he and my son took out a new drone that he had gotten for Christmas and they lost it in the first five minutes. There was no sound coming out of him as he laughed, trying to describe to me how the search for the white drone that they had chosen to take out on a mildly windy day when the ground was covered in snow ended up resembling a scene out of an Abbott and Costello movie. He's pushing all the buttons on that remote, Bob tells me, because we have no idea where it is, and it's popping up out of the tree line and then falling back down, up and down and up and down. He couldn't even finish the story. We both laughed so hard. I remember my lungs burning afterward. I try to put myself in the shoes of a family member, of a person who was killed, in a violent manner, to imagine on top of all that emotion that I just shared about my stepdad, who died a natural death, And then I imagine that his death was intentionally inflicted by another person, and I don't know for sure who that person was or why the death happened. Now you try it. Put yourself in those shoes, living the rest of your life not knowing. You never learn the truth. Never. The more victims who fall into this category that I talk to, the more unacceptable I think it is. It doesn't have to be that way. I think we need to do better. I think everyone involved needs to do better so that when a case is unlikely to proceed any further than it already has, the interested parties should know that and know as much as law enforcement can share without compromising any future possible case should some miracle of information come in. This can't be a black and white issue. Emotions aren't black and white. We can't tuck them away and retrieve them when it's convenient. Withholding information from people who should have answers is adding an unnecessary burden to the rest of their lives. And in most cases, it's completely unnecessary. We need to do better. It's, uh, so to me, you know, I mean, that, and maybe it's just because I want it to sound logical. I had had Ken in our home too many times for dinner. He, was, he helped us put an addition on just before Arnold was killed. He was roofing. He was doing all kinds of construction stuff in our home. Um, we, I know Arnold had given him, you know, money and stuff for working, and we tried to get him help through DHS. They had, he was one of these guys that's just going to fall through the cracks. And on top of it, had mental health issues. Um, I suppose, you know, that the, the, there is a chance that he could have, you know, cracked under it or whatever. I just don't believe that. Um, I never had any, and I usually my gut feeling is pretty good when I'm around people. Mm-hmm. I never had an ill feeling around him or around my kids. Um, and so Arnold and Ken Sr., they got along well? There was no that you yeah. knew of? Well, yeah, they got along fine. Other than, I mean, like I said, he let him live there for almost a year and a half rent-free because he knew, you know, he knew he wasn't getting any assistance. He'd helped us out several times with different things. Um, he would come in and help Arnold with, you know, dressing out for, or, you know, if something, Arnold had things to do, he would, you know, give him you know, pocket money and stuff along with the rent. Um, and so, no, there were never any ill feelings other than, I, like I said, that day, the day he was killed, he was supposed to go, or he was up there to tell him that he was going to have to find another place to live. And and if the boyfriend, if the son and the girlfriend lived there, that was essentially going to throw them out too. I do know that George told me that there were several times that he had called George, the son had called George, to try and get his dad's guns back. And he had told him that, you know, there's no guns being released until this, this case is closed. I don't know if he ever got his dad's guns back or not. Um, you say he called Pratt to get his guns back. What did they do? Go to the home and confiscate all the weapons? The state police confiscated everything that was in the home. Were they all, was, was every weapon accounted for that was supposed to be there? No, Arnold was shot with a twenty two. Um, I don't know if it was a pistol or, a, you know, a rifle. I'm, I'm not sure. I never did find. Um, they just said he was killed with a twenty two um, uh, shell. That gun has never been found. Ken was killed with a shotgun. Okay, so that's right. They did, 
Yeah, there's a missing. Yeah, there's a missing weapon. The gun has never been found that killed Arnold. Um, they did search. There was a lot of swampy area coming through the driveway at the very end of the road. We had to come through. Um, people had used it for dumping and whatever. They did um, after the fact. They had you know used helicopters and stuff to fly over and use the uh, the heat detecting or whatever it is metal detecting stuff. Um, but there was so much stuff in there, nothing really you know, relevant ever showed up. Let me ask you this. Do, have you ever seen a copy of the death certificate? Do you know what it says for, does it say homicide, or does it, what does it say for Arnold? Um, you know, I, somewhere I have it packed away. Um, I'm quite sure that it said, in, uh, not self-inflicted, it was a gunshot wound, to, there was, I mean, it specifically said where it was. Right. Um, I was just. I think it says murder on there, but I'm not sure. Due to, um, you know, I, to be very honest with you, I can't tell you exactly well, what. It is. I'll see if I can get that. Only because here's a, something I have learned is, and this happened with my last case because it was a suppose the, the husband was saying it was a suicide, and Michigan State Police clearly didn't think so. On the be, what happened basically in that case is they just were not able to pull the physical evidence together to make a strong enough case for the prosecutor. And adding to that, the the the, the um, on the death, death certificate it said um, indeterminate. So when when oh, you don't no, even have. I mean, they knew it was a gun. They knew it was a gunshot, but they didn't. They would not say it didn't. You know, you, they'll give you room for suicide, murder, or uh, undetermined. Right. And when it's undetermined, that causes a lot of problems legally speaking when you're trying to uh, go forward with a case because if right. the if the medical examiner can't even say for sure, well, this is what happened, then you're going to have the defense jump all over that. So, so right. I never saw a death certificate from Ken, um, but I'm quite sure Arnold was death due to, you know, gunshot. I don't know if it, if it said murder or suicide. Now, what about, what have you ever heard um, about, did they, I mean, if two people died, they should be able to decide who decide, who died first. I mean. Oh, Arnold, def they definitely said that Arnold was, mur well, Arnold was mur murdered and apparently Ken committed suicide after. Okay. Yeah, because at the time, well, and that's what I was told, because at the time they found Arnold, but they could not find Ken. So they didn't know if he was still hiding out in the woods with a gun. That's why they wouldn't send anybody up there until, you know, morning, until earlier, or until they were waiting for some some team out of Grand Rapids to get up there. I don't know if it was a dog. Um, I don't know what it was now. I think it was for dogs or something. But yeah, so it was several hours before they finally found Ken, and they found him up in the woods, deceased. I got copies of both Arnold and Ken's death certificates because I not only wanted to see what it said for manner of death on both, I wanted to see the time of death listed on both. If this was, in fact, a murder-suicide, you would expect Ken's death to be after Arnold's. Arnold's death certificate says the immediate cause of death was transection of the cervical spinal cord via a 22 caliber bullet wound to the neck and lists the interval between onset and death as five minutes. It is listed as a homicide, and the time of injury is listed at 6.45 p.m. In the spot where the form says to describe how injury occurred, it says, Assailant shot decedent. Kenneth Varney's death certificate says that the immediate cause of death is exsanguination, which means severe loss of blood, due to a contact shotgun wound to the chest. It is listed as a suicide, and the time of injury is listed as 6.57 p.m. It says the decedent shot himself, and the time of death is listed as about 7 p.m. Both determinations were made by Dr. Ronald E. Grazer of Fremont, Michigan. Just to note that these deaths occurred on October 19, 1992. It was cold and snowing outside, so while the temperature may have had some bearing on how they were able to determine the time of death, I am not sure upon which specific facts they relied for the exact time determinations. My guess is that they may have had some witness statements regarding the time that shots were heard by neighbors. And, and then in the days to follow, when you spoke to Detective Pratt over the years now, from all the way up till now, what, did he tell you anything? Did, was there anything he was able to tell you about the case? Specifics, factual information? No. No. 
other than I mean, and I would push there, especially in the beginning, what's going on, you know, what what have you found, you know, what are you going to do, um, you know, who who are you bring in to look, and every time I would push hard enough, you know, well, yeah, we're, we've got this one coming up, we've got that one coming up, um, to check things out. Apparently, they have turned it over to a couple of cold case, um, supposedly is what I've been told. Um, just because he says when we get new people in, you know, if there's an open case out there, we, we like to have them look at it and see if something was, you know, missed or, you know, something one of us didn't see and, you know, new set of eyes, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they can see something that we didn't. Um, but that, other than that, that was about it. I, I still think part of it was because of Arnold. Arnold had... I don't want to say, at the time, the Holmes has all had a reputation up there. Um, if you were a Holmes from Leroy or Luther, um, Arnold didn't hang with a lot of them, but he was known, I mean, he associated with them and stuff. And if you associated with them, you were guilty by association. <laughs> um, and Arnold was not, I, I'm not going to say Arnold was, you know, this angelic person, because he wasn't. Um, he was, he he pulled his share of, or his share of you know garbage that he probably shouldn't have. Um, it was a different type of it was a different era back then, and things that we wouldn't even think about doing now. You know that was just kind of a you know common thing. I mean you know people stole beer trucks and buried them and <laughs> you know all kinds of things like that. I'm not Arnold, but some of his cousins did and. <laughs> They stole the beer truck and and buried. Well, Arnold's one. Well, in fact, it's it's uh, Eldon's brother, Wendell, who is now also. I think he's also passed away. He owned Diamond Lake Bar for years and years, um, and uh, he had a couple of kids, Poncho, and um, th- there were some well-known Holmeses at that time that were known to do some pretty pretty crazy things, and apparently they stole the beer truck and. They had heavy equipment and stuff, and they, you know, they got rid of all the beer and buried the beer truck. Uh, it's not so, funny, but it is. I, I mean, they got in trouble for it. I mean, don't don't get, you know, it's not something they got away with, but it was just, you know, stupid things like that. And uh, there was a lot of dealings, I'm sure, that went on at the bar that, you know, shouldn't have gone on and um, whatever. But uh, it, it's not like it is now by any means. Yeah. And the, the kids growing up now are totally just different, totally different generation of kids. They're all pretty decent kids. And um, and back in the day, those guys were, were, they were the good old boys. Right. You know, and they would get into some pretty, you know, pretty shaky areas, I'm sure. I don't, but it was, it was stupid kind of stuff. I mean, it wasn't like drugs and, you know, that kind of thing. It was just, you know, redneck type. Yeah. Shenanigans. Shenanigans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so and he was an, I know he was involved in a lot of stuff that he shouldn't have been involved in. Um, and like I said, I was a very naive person at that time. Um, I came from the city. I came from, from Waterford. And uh, just because he had been running a trailer to some friends, I worked with her downstate. They moved up here and I came to see them. Well, at that time, he was separated. And one of those things where you just, you know, you start going out with somebody and I ended up moving up. But uh it's uh it it was just it was something different and I was a very naive person and to the day he died, I mean, there were things that were going on that I did not know about. Um so uh it's you know, I, I look back now and I think, God, if I'd have known that I'd have done this or and I thought, No, you probably wouldn't have because it wouldn't have changed the thing but um, I, I definitely wouldn't have put up with a lot of the stuff that I did thinking it was my fault um, or that it was, you know, because of something I was doing or not doing or whatever. Um, and family members knew about it but didn't tell me. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just one of those type of deals. And yeah. Knowing Arnold as well as I did know him at the time, um, we'd been together, um, well, since 78, 88, 17 years, 16 years, um, we'd been together, and uh, it just wasn't, and everybody in the family agreed that it wasn't something he'd have walked away from if there had been a problem, it just wasn't him, 
Yeah, and like you said, and he wasn't afraid to confront somebody. You know, it wasn't like, well, I'm going to get out of here because I think there's something going on. Um, He would have confronted somebody and then backed out, but he had never turned his back. And you, and what you said earlier was true that I mean, where this was, somebody would have had to have known that Arnold was going to go there that day. And it was somebody who was out looking for him, right? right. They had no idea when he was coming home right. from this trip, or you know that he was even coming out that night because there was no telephone, there was no there was no means of communication from the trailer. Um, I'm, I don't even remember if he had electricity on out there at the trailer at the time. Um, I think he might have had a wood stove going, but other than that, I'm not sure there was even electricity there. Who told you that he had gone up and made that call at the in Ashton? The police. The, well, the police department had told me. When I called 911, they said they had just received a call, and it was after that that um, after it was a few days after, and uh, George was at the house, and uh, we were talking, and he had said that you know this is what had happened, you know you. You called, but Ken had already called, and he, but he said he had left. And I said, wasn't well, that kind of strange that he had driven, you know, clear from the house up to Ashton when he could have stopped at any one of the houses? And several people around there had questioned, why didn't he stop at the house, you know? Um, and like I said, Midge LeGros, who lived just down the road to the north, he had to pass her house before he got to the trailer. Um, she said they heard the gunshots. And, uh, but couldn't, and I want to say it might have even been later than like five, six, you know, because it was, they were getting ready to go hunting. So it had to have been after six o'clock. He apparently stopped by his father's house and found Arnold lying dead around the back of the trailer. Because remember, Kathy said the entrance to the trailer was around back of it after you went down the long driveway. So Ken Jr. arrived, drove down the driveway and found Arnold lying there and then left and went to the closest door and called police. The trailer did not have phone service, and Kathy seems to take issue with him not stopping at any of the neighbors to make the call, which would have been closer. In that respect, I'm going to give him a pass, for a couple of reasons. If this occurred, as he said it did, he's just seen what he thinks is a dead person on his father's property, and he can't find his father. Couple that with the fact that he's in his early 20s. He probably panicked and didn't originally know what to do so he drove to the nearest business to call police. Nothing about that stands out to me as incriminating, because while it is a few miles away, you have to keep in mind that the area we're discussing is very rural and comprised of miles of sparsely populated country roads. While there were neighbors, it isn't like living in a subdivision where you can step out of your front door and yell for someone to call the cops. If he didn't know the neighbors, it wouldn't surprise me that he'd instead go to the nearest store to call. To be perfectly honest, I don't know that I'd stop at the home of a stranger either. So to me, none of this seemed unreasonable. You know, Arnold was not a um, an influential person in the community. I mean, we were well-known in the community. We had a very well-known business in the community. Um, we knew a lot of people in the community. But as far as being, um, you know, it wasn't like we or some big wig down in Reed City or Leroy or, you know, whatever. It wasn't a situation like that. And I don't know if at that point, if they really thought, you know, this was worth, and I hate to say that because I figure anybody who's shot and murdered, it should be worth the effort. But I I think it's time. It just, uh, well, you know, we'll just say this is what happened and call it good. Yeah, I think it cut out a lot of extra man hours, and you know, it, it, I guess it was a plausible, feasible explanation. And yeah, there's nothing else we can do. If somebody comes up with some, you know, we're always looking for new information. We're always looking for a new clue or whatever. Right. But um, we're just not going to push the fact. It wasn't. Uh, I'm going to say this was before we even had the kids. I know Arnold had. Uh, Arnold and his neighbors never. There was always, like, it reminds you of the Hatfields and McCoys. There was always little spats going on between um, neighbors and stuff. And uh, I know Arnold apparently had paid a gentleman back in the day to kill a horse that belonged to one of the neighbors. Well, the neighbor, unfortunately, or the guy he had hired to do this, killed the wrong horse. Oh, my God. Okay, so here's the thing. 
First. Holy shit. Second. In court, this would not be admitted as evidence because it has nothing to do with the crime I am outlining for you. But when I'm speaking to family members, I feel uncomfortable removing things that would otherwise give you a better view of the people involved in these cases, particularly if their family member willingly shares that information in the context of better understanding who they were. I don't like editing out bad behavior simply for the sake of it. It feels dishonest. Generally, I try to steer clear of direct accusations, but other than that, if they feel a story about their loved one is pertinent, I'm going to include it. Why? Well, because people are messy, and sometimes awful, and sometimes weird, and sometimes paranoid, and sometimes gross, and sometimes amazing and beautiful, and there are so many things that make up a human being, but one thing's for sure, humans are messy. Messy, messy creatures, and life is messy, and I'm going to do my best to present the information to you as I receive it and not excise things that make me squirm personally. So there you have it. Arnold hired someone to kill a horse, and I don't want to get any nasty letters about it because Jenny didn't kill the goddamn horse, okay? Let's all just agree it was awful and move on. And he and this gentleman ended up in, in Traverse City and apparently talked to his counselor about this and whatever. Well, they in turn, you know, went back to the state police with it. Um, they never arrested Arnold on it. Um, in fact, it was George again. Um, he says, you know, Arnold, this is what's come up. He says, if you want to bring yourself in in the morning, he says, well, you know, we'll do the paperwork and stuff. They let him back, you know, they press the, they, he ended up having to pay restitution to this horse to the guy across the street. Um, and they were little feuds and stuff that went on. Um, I can remember hearing, and none of this happened after, a lot of this stuff never happened after I'm, I got involved, and I don't know if it was just because my personality and temperament. You were more of a calming influence? Um, I think, I don't know if it was a calming influence, but it was a, um, I think I, I was, the way I was brought up, and I was a very independent person, didn't let a lot of people walk over me. Or so I thought at the time. <laughs> um, it's amazing, though, when somebody is, when you believe what somebody tells you, um, how that can influence, you know, decisions you make. Because she has alluded to this a couple times, and it was later confirmed by Arnold's cousin, I want to mention that what Kathy is referring to here is Arnold having an affair, or affairs, while they were married. She didn't know about it at the time, but she learned later, and it is something that was even discussed between Arnold and Mark during that camping trip just prior to his death. We just retired after 35 years of foster care. Um, 72 kids through our home. Oh, wow. So, and we've adopted the last four um, who are all special needs or medically fragile. And, um, I mean, we're, we're in our early 60s. My husband turned 65 this year. I, I, I'm 63 this year. We, I still have a 7-year-old. To 11 year olds and a 16 year old. <laughs> well, that's so, going to keep you hopping, huh? Yeah, it, it does keep us hopping. And uh, so there's, there comes a point where I have to let some things go. Right. Because otherwise it's going to eat me alive and it's always going to be in the back of my mind. But there's no, if there's nothing I can do about it, then I have to let some of it go. I do want closure. I have a son who's 37, which was Arnold's son. Um, he was the one that was 12 years old waiting for his dad to come home and take him out for his first small game hunt. Um, yeah, so that did, did a real number on him. You know, it's there's just some things that I have to let go for my own sanity. Yeah. And if I don't, then I'm no good to anybody else around me. It, it's right. not forgotten, but it's got put back on a back burner way in the back. And after 25 years, yes, I would love to see a closure of some type of this, you know, on this case, but I don't know that we'll ever find it. Um, well, I, I would hope, you know, maybe something would come up. I think it would be good for all of the kids. I think it would be good for some of Arnold's, you know, cousins and stuff who were so close to him. You know, sometimes, what I've found, sometimes closure it takes a different form, and sometimes that is just getting the answers to why a case is where it's at. And that's really my main reason for wanting to do this is I want I like to look at the cases that stalled out and find out why. Because I, I've learned that sometimes cases 
There's just not enough. There's not enough information that a prosecutor feels like they could take a case to trial and get a desired result. And so they won't do it. Nobody to take to trial at that time. Right. If they don't have the physical evidence combined with witness statements that all match up and all and definitive answers, they can't just bring it just to do it and say, let's hope for the best. That's not how it works. Sometimes with the passage of time, people are more willing to talk about things that they might have been scared to talk about before. So I like I said, I don't know if it was just it was one of those things. Well, you know, this person really doesn't matter in the scheme of things. It's over. It's done with. Um, let's just leave it the way it is, and we'll call it good, and, you know, this is what happened. Well, and I'm sorry, that's... No, I, I understand. That's I, I, not right. No, it's not right, and I understand why you have that feeling, because we're we're decades later, and nothing has moved, so... It's but the same exact thing as what it was 20 years Right. I've discussed at length things like how a lack of information in the public leads to people filling in the gaps. I think if you pay attention, once you hear what was in the report. You'll understand why Kathy held this position and may still hold it to this day. This is very common, particularly when cases linger like this, technically unsolved, and police never go to the families and outline what they believe occurred. Police are under no obligation to disabuse the public of their incorrect assumptions around a case, particularly one that is still open, for which there is no definitive evidence to charge another person for murder. This is one area where I think law enforcement can do better. I respectfully submit that there are times in a case when police know that it's not likely to move forward and, aside from extenuating circumstances such as the case info is so specific that revealing something would definitely, not might, not possibly, not could, but would compromise the case, There comes a point where police should reveal what they know to the grieving family. It's not fair to let people die without knowing what happened to their loved ones. Not when you can shed some light on aspects of a case of which they may be unaware. And then let them make up their own mind. Give them that, at least. If that's all they're going to have, ever. Give them that, at least. At least that. A cold case should never simply fizzle from the books like like so much dusty boxes relegated to a closet, never to be opened again, simply because the passage of time eventually overcame any possibility of closure. People should get answers. I think they're entitled to them. That's one of the reasons why I've approached this podcast in the manner that I have. I want to study cases and see how they ended up where they were, and hopefully, within that process, help get family members the answers they deserve. As many as I can dig up anyway. Whether or not they come to the same conclusions about an unsolved case as I do, at the end of the process, they are entitled to as much information as I can get for them. At least that. I will say that we might get the reports and find that a lot more was done than you think. If they if they don't redact them, I'll let, I'm going to keep in touch with you because I may have questions and follow-ups. But it has been my experience that when I start digging in, I find out that they did a lot more, and then I get a little more answers as to why we are where we at. So we'll see. Let's see what, what we find out. And, you know, it's been a long time. Maybe we will... Uh, kick up some dirt and and get some answers. I'm hoping that we at least find out why we're where we are. In the next episode, you will meet Arnold's cousin, the law enforcement officer who originally contacted me about this case. It turned out to be an extremely interesting conversation. But in the beginning, I remember wondering why he would reach out to me at all. He'd come to me as a family member, rather than a law enforcement officer, wondering if I might be interested in looking into the case like I had some of the other local cases, and I asked him why. I wondered what he thought that I could do that he couldn't. He was surprisingly candid. This is what he said in an email. Law enforcement doesn't traditionally do a very good job of keeping these things alive and keeping attention on them primarily because people don't wait for us to solve one crime before they start killing each other again. We work it hard and as long as we can, but eventually it fizzles out. 
A concerned citizenry seems to do more to stir interest and empathy and action in people. Citizens are also more approachable and people reach out to them more. For various reasons, I suppose that occurs, but chiefly among them are that people are intimidated by us. Oftentimes there are witnesses in the lifestyle that won't and can't talk to us. And some people believe by talking to non-law enforcement personnel they won't end up listed as witnesses and faced with confronting a suspect or fearing reprisal. I figure you have probably established a decent network and contacts up there and I'm not there anymore and it's difficult to make the trip and if this does turn into something, you're going to be much more successful in bringing attention to it than I am. In the next episode, you'll get to hear our conversation and learn what he found when he got the report on the deaths of Arnold Holmes and Kenneth Varney, including some things we really weren't expecting. Stay tuned.